Please join us for the International. Oh no, I'm sorry. The the Intergalactic. Please join us for the Intergalactic. Arise from Imperial domination. Throw off division, fear, and doubt. Bell towers, thunder, condemnation. For there is only one way out. No more the empire's chain shall bind us. Will you echo Farrick's call? From our bricks shall rise the new foundations. They think we're not, we shall be all. Tis the final conflict on every prison, moon, or base. Unite the rebel alliance, we'll free all outer space. Tis the final conflict on every prison, moon, or base. Unite. Oh, that's a sleigh. I'm in I love tears. that. Oh my god. I love that. Yeah, it's oh. Yeah. And when are they going to put that in the show? When are they going to do it? Tony Gilroy. <laughs> god bless Katie Unger, my fellow the Jewish Vote Steering Committee member and big believer in uh, putting new leftist lyrics to existing popular music. I contacted her to say, can you flip it this time? Can you put Star Wars lyrics to political music? (laughs) So like so many of my friends who aren't necessarily huge Star Wars heads, she really loves the show. And I actually came to realize that I had a few friends who love Andor who I had to go and explain to them that they should probably also watch Rogue One. They were like, oh, Oh, yeah, I guess I'll do that. Oh, yeah. So this is the time we're in. And with that, let me welcome back my amazing guests who joined me to talk about the first part of Andor. They're now joining me to talk about the second half of the season. This entire thing is going to be just 100% spoilers. And in fact, I'm going to tell you guys, if you haven't listened to part one of the Graphic Policy Radio podcast conversation around Andor, stop this, go back, listen to part one. This is all going to be building off of part one. So go back, listen to that episode, and then come back and join us for this. Because today it is Andor part two, season one, second half of the season, and joining Graphic Policy Radio to talk about it are Claudia Amenabar. Claudia is a media critic and script consultant who co-hosts RuPalp's Pod Race, a queer Star Wars podcast, and Mysteries Podcast, a Supernatural Rewatch. She has appeared on NPR, The Mary Sue, io9, Comics Beat, and more. Uh, including, where, where, where did you just write that really big think piece about Star Wars and how Andor is not so different, you and I? Oh, um, it's at Prime Timer. I wrote, I've written two pieces lately. I wrote one about Tales of the Jedi and how it is also quite political. And then I wrote another one about Andor um, and how it actually is very Star Wars. Um, <laughs> um, got up. That's yes, for primetimer.com. Primetimer, cool. so, awesome. You know. And just to close out her bio, while suffering through a toxic and unstable career in journalism, she decided to read and watch the entire Star Wars canon. So she has an absurd amount of knowledge about this universe. Welcome back to the show, Claudia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm really excited to talk more about this show because my my mind is it's going in a million places. It's going in a million places. <laughs> And joining me again is my frequent unindicted co-conspirator, Charles Lenschner. 
Uh, he is a guest with a history of rebellions and resistance, maybe not from a galaxy far away, but raised in Israel where he resisted the occupation and even spent some time in prison for refusing to be a soldier. Since then, he's been part of several major movements, including anti-corporate globalization, fights, stomping the Iraq war, Occupy Wall Street, and the historic rise of Bernie Sanders and democratic socialism. Welcome back, Charles. Hello. I'm really excited to be back with you both to talk about this. I uh, I kind of began to rewatch the second half of the season in preparation. One of the things that really hit me is how good of a job the show does with its last week on or previously on. There are definitely some people who we brought back in our very final episode, for example, the local business owner who is kidnapped and tortured, who... I mean, we needed to have that touch base with him to be like, oh, right, this is who he is. This is who his son is. I think the show did a good job helping us out, make sure we weren't missing any of the richness and quality that it's built over the course of the season. I like when a TV show, like especially like a really long running one, will have a previously on that is like very tailored. And you're like, oh, I think I know what's going to happen based on what <laughs> you've chosen in this little, in this situation here. So I was impressed at how I could tell who people were, despite the fact that they're all wearing the same uniform. Oh, man. Yeah, no. I, and rewatching the prison break today, I was struck by while I, I can, I mean, look, these are Star Wars names. And I, I'm really good at names, but I am not good at Star Wars names. I do remember they gave each of the dudes kind of their own thing. And you were like, oh, this is the guy who was the first one to throw a wrench. And this was the guy who was the first one to jump into the water. You kind of get some of the individuality of the people, which I think is kind of beautiful. Oh it's yeah. So, let's start by talking about the prison planet stuff. You know, I I uh, I was reading an interview with Tony Gilroy where he expressed concern that, like, literally, he was like, one of the things I was worried about when making this was that some of the ideas for the prison planet that haven't been put into practice IRL might get put to practice IRL because I put them in this. No, um, yes. literally, yeah. it's the um, yeah. the Ready yeah. Player One thing when like they. Well, I mean, they do this with all sci-fi where like they'll put something and then later some idiot like Elon Musk will be like, "What if we did that for real?" You're like, literally, the whole book was about how you shouldn't do that. Oh <laughs> God, I'm scared. Charles, do you want to go into a definition of Foucault's uh, Panopticon explanation because that's uh, of immediate yes. bearing to this conversation. So uh, in in the old in the good old days when uh, when the powers that be wanted uh, wanted to control someone then they would enact violence on them in public, and this was a good lesson for all concerned. But as the civilization progressed, we found more efficient ways to get people to conform, and the Panopticon is uh, sort of the ultimate in that. It's a prison where you are always visible to the central location. But you don't know if the central location is looking at you or not. So in that way, everyone has the feeling of being observed all the time, and then they have to restrict their behavior to not get punished, whereas the number of people doing observing can, can be very low, uh, allowing for highly efficient control. And the, the design of the panopticon, which comes from a reformer's idea of what a good prison might look like, uh, is hundreds of years old and resembled the kind of slave camps, uh, prison camps that they uh, were using in the show. I just have to say, shout out to, I was making fun of Star Wars names, but Kino, right? Kino means film. 
as played by the excellent Andy Serkis, he's the prisoner who like believes that by following the rules and becoming an enforcer, he will become free. Uh, and so he's operating as the camera, as the eye monitoring everyone. And it isn't until Andor shows up to be like, no one is listening, that that kind of rest begins to break and change. Um, so what a performance and what a Star Wars name for that. Kino Loy is so interesting because like the whole way that Cassian gets to him is Cassian again is showing that Cassian is going to be a really good spy like he realizes what makes Kino tick and he's like oh this is the guy that I need to change his mind everyone will follow him Mm -hmm. and he realizes what makes him tick and what makes him tick is like this is his coping mechanism his coping mechanism is you know keep your nose to the grindstone we're gonna get out and he's like if I show him that his coping mechanism is doesn't work then he'll break um and that's and that's why he keeps like hammering home on it and he's like nobody's listening that's another thing that changes his mind is finding out that last piece of information that they're not getting mm-hmm. out that they're being lied to because like he he had one thing to look forward to um and i it was, it's very interesting cuz in in the rebellion they have these things called the in the Re- rebel intelligence usually a spy who is like at the center of a cell or something they are called a fulcrum it's very similar to the code name that that the empire gives to luthan which is axis and Mm. it's literally kino he is the fulcrum in this situation of you know kind of the tipping point i just thought that was interesting and cool anyway shout out to star wars rebels once again (laughs) (laughs) well i really loved how when it breaks through to him cassian understands that kino is the voice that needs to be on the loudspeaker and I, I love how it also shows the reveal, like at, earlier on, even how like the, the voice that you hear, that's the voice, the omniscient voice is just a regular guy going through voice distortion. But the, the episodes really do build towards that. Like you can see from the beginning of the time that Cassian lands on the prison planet, he's constantly looking to see the ways in which the prison is not as powerful as it establishes itself to be. Like he notices, and you can see him noticing right off the bat that they're understaffed. Like you even can see them complaining about not having enough staff from the episode where he lands. Um, But anyway, so like Cassian understands that Kino needs to be the one on the loudspeaker. He pushes Kino to give the speech that Kino needs to give. And when one of the things that's kind of beautiful is that Kino sort of begins by, he's talking about like, we're going to have to fight. There's one way out. And he says specifically, if you see someone struggling or confused, help them and move them along with us, basically. And I just thought that was a really beautiful, powerful and yeah, he says, if you see someone who was lost or confused, help them. I mean, I'm sure that, plenty of people got trampled on the way out, but to have people try to aspire to not do that is a value. I think it really it really spoke to like the kind of the central ethos of the show of like that all of these things have to happen through community. It's not just mm-hmm. like Cassian's actual neighborhood and community, whatever. It's like, you know, the same thing in the prison. It doesn't matter what's happening. It has to happen through a community effort. Um, and like about caring about each other. And we see that like with the heist, we don't really care about each other. It's very like whatever that's like, well, we, we have to kind of give a shit. Um, obviously, you know, they're effective, but half of them do die. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. half of them die. They have an information leak. It's like, it doesn't go well, but then we see the things that do succeed in some way, you know, have to do with like some form of community care. And I was like, oh, I'm really glad that that's, clear through the Mm. whole thing also really interesting that we're showing that with all men because this is a men's Mm -hmm. prison um to show like 
you know, between the various characters in the in the um, in the prison of like all men who are showing love and care for each other. Yeah, it was touching, and especially because the whole place is set up to be as impersonal and dehumanizing as humanly possible. And like by turning prisoners into the enforcers, right? That is itself so dehumanizing. And then the whole structure of everything is completely gamified where each team is fighting against each other and each group is policing each other, competing against each other. Amazon warehouseification. The way that they're built, they're building the prison to prevent people from having any solidarity with each other. And yet people find a way. Like those two guys we see signaling, hand signaling to each other from across the different uh, sky bridges, even from the beginning. Like you can find all the people finding a ways. It's not just Cassian finding ways to uh, keep maintain their humanity and communication and not be fully dehumanized in the face of this oppression. But like, it's such a genius structure for encouraging them to be alienated from each other, to compete against each other and hurt each other. Anyway, I'm sure you have thoughts about this, Charles. Well, just, I thought you gave a great summary. It is, but it's, it's common. It's what you find. Um, all, all prisons are permeable uh, is the bottom line. Do you feel like the, realization that people were not getting out of there alive like is itself enough to push people to take greater risks it was clearly a tipping point but i think that what mattered wasn't uh the language that was used it was the fact that someone took over the microphone um Mm -hmm. we we have to remember the 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 words that are very inspiring are make for excellent television but it was the control over the microphone that made any of that possible and that was the key point that suddenly there's a plan and people think they might be able to win. That's what would spur people to action. Did you notice that they did not shoot the last two guys in the control room? Yeah, that uh, was weird. I would have, I would have definitely shot them. I know. It just was like in the crazy. heist. It's just like in the heist where I was like, all of them have seen your faces. Why are you letting them live? <laughs> I felt, okay, like, I'm glad it wasn't just me. I was like, Please, please shoot these guys. There's also yeah. something that we said about, about oh, he realized that Kino has to be the one who gives the speech. And this mm-hmm. is a, a conversation. We had it on Repops, and I've seen a couple of people talk about, like, you know, Cassian is a leading character, but he is not a leader. He inspires people and supports people to lead. He is he is rebel intelligence. He is not a general. He is, you know, he's not even the person who leads Rogue Squadron. He inspires mm-hmm. Jin to do so. And it's, you see him doing the same thing here of like that he inspires others like in Rogue One he's he says the rebellions are built on hope and then she echoes his words and then here in these episodes he says the whole piece of like I'd rather die than I forget what the exact quote is like I'd rather die than like build their shit or whatever and then that's yeah. exactly what Kino says to everybody to inspire them whatever like he is a he is an instigator kind of deal but he's not the leader himself and I'm I'm I just love that consistency and that characterization for him because I think there was there's been a lot of discourse of like is he a boring protagonist? I'm like no, he's not at all. What are you talking about? Like he's just different than everybody else. Um, he even does that with Melshi when they get out and they're like, okay, what do mm-hmm. we do? Like, did everybody get out? Whatever. And he's like, we're gonna go try and tell as many people as we know, and that's what we're gonna do. Like he he gives everybody the plan. But he's not he's not the leader. Um, yeah. I just think it's an interesting kind of character. I was also struck by like the the whole ending with Kino being like, I can't swim at the end, even though he knows full well, like they know that they're 
he he arrived. He knows what they are around. And it made me think a lot about like the whole thing with Moses, who like brings the the, the people to the promised land, but can't actually yes. enter. And it, it it reminded me of Luthen as well. Like Luthen is very clear in his monologue in the second to last episode that like he does not believe he is going to see the promised land because he is damned because he is using the tools of his enemy to fight the fight for justice so i kind of saw them as both kind of making that statement for themselves yeah it brings some extra weight i think also to kino finally like turning on a dime and him saying one way out like knowing that he's not getting out is like oh that was that was that was devastating also uh, Stellan Skarsgård, that whole monologue, my God, Emmy-winning performance there. Mm-hmm. I was like, holy shit! Do you have thoughts on them on that on that monologue that Luthen did um, to keep Lonnie remaining on the on his program as the Inside Man? I thought that was uh, that was a masterful masterful uh, demonstration of how if you really understand psychology and and what motivates other people and what their pressures are you can, with some accuracy, manipulate and predict what people are going to do. Um, but it's ugly at the same time. It can't feel good to have it done to you. I was struck at, at first, I was not clear that Lonnie was an inside man by choice. For At first, I thought he was being blackmailed into giving the resistance information. That's how like terrified and confused it I've, you know, and, and then and then you realize that it actually did come from this longstanding political commitment. But now he is actually being blackmailed by the resistance to stay in. Yeah, yeah. I have kids. Let me be free. No. <laughs> in fact, yeah. we're we're letting people die to keep you in play. Such a manipulation, but also that whole strategy of that pivot between trying to get Saw Guerrera to join him, Krieger, and then being like, don't do it because you're going to die, and admitting to Saw, the um, his first Whitaker's character, for folks who don't remember, um, you know, that you have to do it to keep your inside man alive. And the value of that is, is um, it's a question like, you know, does, is Saw going to be more alienated or a greater believer um, from this move? Well, we know that he eventually becomes more alienated, which is ironic because usually they depict Saw as the guy who's making those more difficult, more violent dis- like decisions. And he's he's pissed in this thing that like you're making me make this decision for some about somebody. He's like, right. um, you know, how why are right. you pushing this on me? Um, but usually Star Wars will put him in that situation. I like how finally they were like, what if it's in Shades of Grey? And, you know, he he is one of several people who has to make a decision like this. Um, is put in these kind of weird situations. I noted two things about Sagarera when I was watching, which was that one, um, they specifically talk about him having specifically an anarchist idea, idea belief system. Whereas a lot of the other um, rebel cells, like it's not necessarily clear what their ideology is. Uh, and then he also is the guy who's like, he's got more non-human members He's got some of the only non-humans, you know, that we really see doing much of anything in this. It's sort of a, it, it, it's just interesting. He he does play that radical fringe very well, and he basically flat out admits that he he would rather stay alone and fight for his particular vision than truly unite with the other factions to overthrow the empire. He's planning in his head 
how to win the fight after the revolution wins. Yeah, when he says, yeah. I'm the only one with the clarity of purpose, I'm like, yeah, that's his character the whole time um, mm -hmm. in everything. And it's interesting you said he has some of the only non-humans. The background on Segarera, he's introduced in The Clone Wars um, in this very problematic arc that is clearly an A commentary on several wars in the Middle East um, that is basically like, hey, we as the Republic and the Jedi cannot interfere on this planet that is not one way or, or the other. Um, however, the rebels do need assistance. So we are going to go train the rebels and we are not going to participate ourselves. Hmm, sounds a little familiar. And yeah. his crew is trained. And basically the thing that sends him off the deep end like already he has lost most of his family his whole thing is interesting because he does come from a planet where that is more non-human based um i believe because at some point they are separatists and a big part of palpatine's uh proxy war situation of demonizing the separatists and demonizing people who want to separate away from the republic is giving them a non-human face so he has mm. he is at all these different intersections of already be being prepared for this, already seeing – he's one of the first people to kind of like see the bigger picture, very much sees it from a bird's eye view and is not playing Palpatine's game. And of course, they get their ass kicked for that. Um, they're not picking a side or whatever. But when he says like, Tony Gilroy, I know you don't watch The Clone Wars, but when you said <laughs> – when he said, uh, I'm the only one with clarity of purpose, I loved it so much because then when you see him again in Rebels, he's older and he – He's one of the only people who is slowly figuring out the Death Star and stuff like that. And people think he's crazy. Mm -hmm. They don't believe him, obviously, because he's been more and more alienated. And then you see him in Rogue One, which is after this, because he's not willing to join, because he has gotten even more to the side or whatever. And I liked this kind of turn for him that it's not just like, oh, he's the more extreme one. But that, like, there are things that not just, like, the rebellion as a whole has done, but, like, his allies even in the beginning have done to alienate him to make him not trust. Um, There's so many really relevant um, pointed uh, conclusions. It makes me think that um, someone's been watching DSA caucus politics and has a lot to say <laughs> about it. <laughs> George Lucas, what are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, like, no, I mean, I really think about that. Like he literally, he literally has some quote where he's like disparaging the other cells. Sorry, go ahead, Charles. No, just that 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 the split between the more radical radicals and the moderate radicals is always there, and it's very alive in in left organizations today in the U.S. and in our movements. Mm -hmm. And watching it play out, and then you see that this is—it's not just us; it's not just now. This is a this is an always problem that exists in movements, and we don't really have good ideas about how to resolve it. Mm. The well, other than unite against the Empire. The irony, yes. <laughs> though, is that at the end of the season, you have you finally hear Nemec's manifesto, and Nemec says he's like, no matter if we are fighting together or not, if we are all doing something individually on our own that pushes back, we all win. Um, kind of deal. And it was it was very it was a very interesting take on that because I know like in other appearances of Sagarera's, he's kind of said that about he's he's like, I don't have to work with you guys, the Rebel Alliance, to to whoop their ass. Uh <laughs> kind of deal. And it's it was an interesting take on that kind of same idea, especially around when they know that 
hit the planet he eventually becomes centered on uh jedda which is what gets destroyed in one of the ones that gets destroyed in uh rogue one like that becomes his community he's coming at it from protecting his community and his planet and the people with him are as well mm-hmm. once they destroy the city of jedda it destroys like half the planet and the rest of the planet is like decaying but they're like no we are here to protect who is left and like jedda is so clearly palestine for folks who haven't watched the movie oh, oh have to watch Rogue One, my dear. Like it's just, it's really powerful. Um, it's like some of the most intense urban combat I have seen. It is, it is extremely powerful. You know, I you reminded me, like I definitely do want us to reflect on the, the part of the uh, Nemex manifesto that we have, which is, in fact, says some of the things that Charles said actually in last in, in the last episode. No, literally, own. I said that when it I does. was watching. I was like, "Oh my god, based." <laughs> well, so I'm gonna. Okay, here, here's here's what it says. And again, not an actor. There will be times when the struggle seems impossible. I know this already. Alone, unsure, dwarfed by the scale of the enemy. Remember this: freedom is a pure idea. It occurs spontaneously and without instruction. Random acts of insurrection are occurring constantly throughout the galaxy. There are whole armies, battalions that have no idea that they've already enlisted in the cause. Remember that the frontier of the rebellion is everywhere, and even the smallest act of insurrection pushes our lines forward. And then remember this, the imperial need for control is so desperate because it is so unnatural. Tyranny requires constant effort. It breaks, it leaks, authority is brittle. Oppression is the mask of fear and know this, the day will come when all these skirmishes and battles, these moments of defiance will have flooded the banks of the empire's authority and then there will be one too many. One single thing will break the siege. Remember this, try. The way I was screaming, crying and throwing up when they did that, I was like, oh, oh my God, oh my God. (laughs) Like, I mean, from like a, it's just good writing perspective, also from like a political perspective, but then also from like a Star Wars perspective, it's it's all happening. Because like, there is this idea of like interconnectedness through the force. Like, there's always people who are Jedi or whatever who are like, you know, you don't have to be force sensitive for the force to flow through you and for it to influence you or whatever. And then you have this same idea in Andor of like people aren't hmm. connected by magic, but they are connected. And like you have people like Nemec who are like, it doesn't matter if we're working together, we are all pushing back against the same thing because we all have the same idea. And then you see all these communities that are brought together with a common cause, whatever. And I was like, that's that's what it's all about. That's the whole point. Like, oh, Tony, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the speech made me think of an important point about the logic of empire, including our own American empire. Organizations want to reduce the amount of complexity in order to make management from the top easier. And it doesn't matter what kind of decisions are being made. Fewer options is better. What that prison exemplified is the end result of people saying, well, okay, how do we make it really simple? How do we reduce the options? How do we Mm -hmm. minimize the human component in the system in order to automate people as if they were machines? Um, the empire is doing that to entire planets. That's the logic of a system that large and bureaucratic. Speaking of bureaucracy, um, I love that we continue to spend more time like looking at the internal politicking within the ISB. Um, and I love how the show just really lets Deidre be a full-on monster, which she is. 
like the moment where Bix basically calls her, like, you're going to torture me no matter what. And basically she says, um, yeah, you're not going to believe me anyway, are you? And Deidre <laughs> smiled. Oh. And that that's was pretty, pretty smart. I would hire her for my um, intelligence network. Deidre? She's girl boss derogatory. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I um I thought that the the tool for torture they were using is like the dying voices of children of an alien race they extinguished. It's dark. That was on another dark. level. Like damn. Well, they, they have real sound weapons they use against protesters already. Um, like the LAPD has used them at pro is tried to use them and stuff like that. I'm sure the NYPD has, but or the, or the heavy metal music that they would use on detainees in Guantanamo. But they have like a they have like an LRAD like unit that they like made specifically to incapacitate protesters um, by making really deafening noises. Like this is real. And then the question is, how do you inspire people enough that even if they know that that is a thing that exists that the police have that they will stir, turn out to say black lives matter, you know, it causes, um, it can cause permanent damage. Yeah. 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 It was interesting to me that in the riot on Ferrix, they very specifically made them look like police. Yes. There are stormtroopers in the background, but they very specifically made them look like police. And I was like, Tony, mm-hmm. I see what you did there. I know it was yeah. on purpose. I know what you were trying to say, and that's very – especially, I know, because there were a lot of protests in L.A. itself. They're going for, like, the traditional protest look with the riot shields, whatever, which is not something that normally happens in Star Wars. And I was like, damn, they're they're going for it. Yeah, Charles, what did you think of the riot cops' response to – Marva's speech. Just, just to, for context, I, I think part of what you're it, part of what was going on was the use of a funeral in order to uh, that has permission because how could you forbid a funeral and then using that to create a political moment and a demonstration and maybe even a riot. So that was typical of how the Intifada progressed in uh, in 1987, 88. The Israelis would kill a protester and then there'd be a funeral in the town of the protester. And then that would turn into a big demonstration again. And that was something that fueled a lot of the unrest that made it ungovernable by Israel for, you know, for, for substantial amount of time. Um, I, I believe Tony Gilroy said that was a direct inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Um, But I I was going to say, if I was in charge of suppressing the population, I wouldn't have waited for the crowd to commit an act of defiance that forces me to act. I would have instigated uh, a very stupid act uh, uh, by my, you know, as as the occupying force, or by having people look like locals doing it for me, um, rather than let the people have the momentum. That's an important thing you need to know if you're going to occupy. Oh my god! The fact that they even chose the hotel as their base, which is like, like that's what they actually do. (laughs) Yeah, God bless Marva. Like she's trying to find (laughs) if the tunnel will still let them go into the hotel. And it's interesting that like Big Bix and the others are treating Marva like she's delusional and senile. And like, I mean, she's she is elderly, but she's not wrong. That's a piece of information that is valuable to know. I want to know, like. For dramatic reasons, of course, we got to hear the majority of Marva's speech because it was amazing and inspiring. But I was shocked that police didn't try to shut down the projection from the droid sooner. Like they they let that go for quite some time. Well, they they 
tell me what you all, said. <laughs> they initially gave permission for 40 people to attend the funeral yeah. as a procession because they were thinking of it as a procession. 40 people is manageable. But instead what happened is the entire village, you know, or the entire town came out so that by the time that the, the permitted march reached the final destination, there were far more than 40 people all clustered together. That was a failure of policing, if you ask me. Um, mm -hmm. What they could have done is imposed a curfew so that anyone aside from those 40 would be beaten as soon as they popped their head out the door. You know, I... I I, I think like the projection and recording that Marva left was really powerful and it's great to see them let an older woman be the bearer of revolutionary information to people. And then like literally turning her into a brick that gets thrown at the She pigs. was the first brick at Stonewall. She, yes. Yes. <laughs> literally. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I, um, I had to. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And I also reminded me of the Battle of Cable Street, which was one of the street fights between fascists and anti-fascists in England um, that involved people throwing bricks at fascists. And my friend, frequent podcast guest, Stephen Attawell's great aunt and great uncle met there because they reached for the same brick. Oh, um, <laughs> I know love. it's like the greatest, it's the greatest story ever told. And then I also think about like, you know, like the, the Paris, um, 1968 student uprisings. There was one of the big chants there was beneath the paving stones, the beach, which involved people yanking up a lot of paving stones and hurling those at cops. So Ferrix in a way was setting us up for that this whole time by being the brick planet. Basically, I keep thinking about it. Ferrix is like F.E. and F.E. is iron, right? Like there's some... Yeah. There's some beautiful naming in there. Oh, um, you, and, and iron is used for steel, which means that Tony Gilroy is a Stalinist. Oh, obviously. I mean, I mean th th from th what he said. <laughs> well, now that we know he's a Stalinist, I guess we should stop. We should stop talking about him. He's evil. There you go. No. Well, um, yeah. splitters, your splitters. Okay. Um, so yeah, I don't know any 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 last thoughts about that amazing climax scene. I, I, shout out to the music that they're playing. Oh, by the way, it was so. I will say also the the instigating event being having to do with a droid was so interesting to me because like Tony Gilroy was like, oh, I think it'd be interesting if he they had like a family dog or whatever. And like they're they're yeah. seeing a lot of the grief and stuff through the droid. Um, yeah. And I love when sci-fi it's it's weird when Star Wars is fantasy, but then it takes a hard turn into sci-fi when it like examines like the sentience of droids, whether in a like a mm -hmm. funny way or in a regular way. And they did the same thing in this show where like there's all these instigating events that happen because of a droid. And also like you can tell things about people. It's a reflection of who they are based on how they or the community treats a droid and what they believe is sentience. Cause the whole thing is like, you know what's humanity or well i say sentience in star wars because not everyone's mm -hmm. human um yes. but like what is what is humanity what what matters that kind of thing and so like you know what does that say about people and it's very interesting that like you know a droid is usually a part of these instigating events you know from a new hope or you know to this mm -hmm. it's it was it was just very interesting to me yeah it's true like they really do have them be the heart of it and the emotional touch point for so many because they can be made, they're cute and they're round and they're little and they can express things in a different way than, you know, adults will do. Um, yeah. Unless they're K2SO who just can throw people. <laughs> we haven't seen evil droids yet, but surely in a world where you have evil robots that don't look like droids, it'd be very simple to make one that is a droid. 
Well, we have seen one when when Cassian gets arrested, right. he gets arrested by an Imperial droid. It is the same model as the as his droid that we see when we first meet him in Rogue One. He has a reprogrammed Imperial droid, which is exactly what you're saying. One basically an evil droid. Um, they're enforcer droids where they're they're tall. They can throw you exactly what right. Cassian. So like when they included that droid being the thing that arrests him, everyone was like, "Oh, that was a low blow." Because K two is his droid that he reprograms. Another yeah, piece that's of, why it's like, meaningful. Um, it's meaningful that like Cassian doesn't hold it against droids. Basically, droids is interesting also because another instigating thing of the Clone Wars was that the Separatists use all droids. So there are people who have very real resentment against droids because they destroyed entire communities and whatever and they're oh right like the sort of the mandalorian right yeah like the mandalorian like he doesn't like droids because he's like i my family was killed by the separatists who had droid armies and and the separatists were like well we're better people because we use droid armies and you you produced people to go die Mm. but we just use droid armies but now there's like there's actual trauma involved with droids depending on what they are like yeah. So if you want evil droids, that's the Clone Wars. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the that's the Clone Wars. But it's also K2 who we see in, in this. We see his model. Um, I definitely is. want to talk about within the ISB, you sort of see the ongoing struggle of what the Empire is supposed to be spending its priorities looking into and monitoring. I, I love the moment where Cyril realizes that um, Deidre does not give a fuck about his two dead cops that she's oh it's so (laughs) like he like realizes that and then of course i mean you also see when he falls in love at her when she berates him he's like oh it's like my mom so then he knows how to he knows how to relate with that freud has entered the building he has entered the building (laughs) i want to classify the kind of character he is so it can be the start of an ongoing trope he's he's basically a simp anti-hero he's an incel this, his, I mean, his story. He's simping for her. He he wants to be dominated by her. Sure, it's not sexual ah. yet, but but he lives to be told what to do by her. He's already agreed with anything she might tell him in advance. That's mm-hmm. that's not um, that's not just bootlicking, um, but bootlicking may well be involved down the road. <laughs> he, he he loves the taste of boot leather he really does i mean it, it fulfills a spiritual need that he has and i'm just well, saying if you if you're a male character in an action movie and you're feeling that way about a girl boss a woman boss right that's a significant departure from tropes of yesteryear what's interesting is like he He's not the first character in Star Wars to be like this, but the, what the thing about him is he has no connection to the Force or anything. He's very much the creation of an incel in that, like, yes, we have things that are a bit creepy towards women in, in Star Wars, but I think this is the first time I have ever seen the very real-life thing that has happened to me and many others of sexual harassment. Like, that scene... Shocking. Both yeah. of those scenes... I was, I was, the acting was incredible and the direction was incredible because I was terrified. I was like, and here's, and we, we had a whole joke about this and we were talking about this on Roof House and we were like, because there's people who like ship them together. And I was like, no, stop, ah, like, wow. stop it. I mean, Tony look, Gilroy like, was asked about this and he was like, <laughs> he was like, I mean, no, gross. And people were like, yeah, you know, they're like, is she a fascist? I was like, 
does she deserve to get her head bashed in with a brick? Yes. Does she deserve to be sexually harassed? No. That's the difference. <laughs> right. That's I, I hear you. I hear you. That is a difference. It's like, well, she fucking tortured Bix. But the sexual harassment part, mm. like, it's so interesting, though, because in the end, she, uh, she's getting dragged under by the mob. The only person who cares enough about her as an individual to pull, to pull her out, like, she would have been fucking trampled to death slash should have been. The only person who cares enough to pull her out is her stalker. Right. Um, I, I realized well, someone speaking up for the stalker community pointing out exactly. Not all stalkers. <laughs> I realized something. You know, Cyril's little cop friend that he brings with him. Like he, I don't know what he told him to come with him because his mission was to save her the whole time. Because mm-hmm. he wasn't. I don't think he was there to like. I don't know what he was thinking he was going to be doing, but like he convinced this man to come with him just on his weird little stalking quest. Like, what's going on with that other man? I, I gotta I think, know. Yeah, he well, the other guy is very much a particular kind of police archetype. I um, shout out to uh, Overinvested podcast who pointed out the ways in which the divisions between the different kinds of police and Andor kind of evoke uh, a lot of stuff from the Terry Pratchett Discworld books, actually. But like which I've just been listening to now. And I'm like, oh yeah, no, he is that other flavor. He's a sergeant. Like it's the enlisted men and versus the officer corps and like the different roles they're playing. I mean, one of the crazy things, of course, is like Cyril Karn, he shouldn't have been in the field in the first place. He's an inspector. And so when he decided he was going to go take over an actual like street fight for like earlier on, he had no business doing that. And of course it all fell apart, right? Like it's not even his skill set. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm definitely curious to see what more what happens with them in the in the new in the new season. Um, one one of my other big accept obsessions. Well, I want to talk about Mon Mothma and how much I love this character. Um, and there's so many different things we could talk about about her. I want to pivot first a little bit to talking about her relationship with Val, uh, her niece, her very very posh her niece, cousin, um, her cousin, her cousin Val. I don't even know. They might be actually cousins. I, I don't. Yeah, know. they're but, cousins. Um, okay. Um, but yeah, I feel like there's this, we see this moment, which I'm sure, you know, like Charles will probably recognize where Cinta, you know, is explaining to reminding, I should say Val that like, look, you know, the, the rebellion comes first. Um, she, she also says like a thing I think we have to sort out here, which is, um, do you think the empire stops the cash its breath? This is a fight to the galaxy for the galaxy. Um, but like, and then you hear Val quote that to Mon Mothma when Mon Mothma is asking her, like, please lay low for a bit. You're, you know, you're in too much risk. She's telling Val, like, Val, you're being in a lot of danger. And Val reminds Mon, I mean, rightly, like, Mon, you're under a fucking microscope. You are literally in a house surrounded by spies. You are also under a ton of risk. Like, don't act like, you know, I'm the only person who's doing something dangerous. We all are. Um, but I feel like it was di- interesting seeing the different people in the different roles within the resistance and their positions kind of each acknowledging that they are doing something important without necessarily having it be like a dick measuring contest. I don't know. It feels like, it feels like Cinta fills a, fills a very similar role to Cassian where of being like the behind the scenes person. Cause like the same thing happens where she says something that inspires Vel mm. to mirror her or whatever like Vel can be in a more yeah. leadership role or whatever but Cinta's like the the puppet master behind the, much like Cassian is and we know that also um 
like Sint is the best operative as well. Um, yeah. She's the intelligence person. And so like she's a person that like inspiring the people on behind the scenes. Um, and I know that like her and Val, they have their like complex relationship, but like t- Tony Gilroy let them kiss on screen. I'm tired. Yeah. One kiss, please. I had to watch two straight people kiss. We yeah. we started this with the, the series out. They were in a brothel. So why can't the two lesbians kiss? Just for two seconds. Two seconds. I appreciated I somebody like, online pointed out that when they're when they're breaking down the site on Ferrix, one of Valor said to ask the other, the closet? And when the other was like, oh, it's empty. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that like, was yep. me. I pointed that out. That was you? Good on you. Yeah, that was great. I was like, is that a closet joke? <laughs> I, I want to talk about the, the different hats that Mon Mothma is wearing with this being in the Senate, which seems to be completely powerless um, with uh, trying to fund the rebellion. And it's interesting because she seems like he's trying to fund rebellion without trying to direct the rebellion, which I think is great because having money doesn't mean you should be in charge of things. I have also noticed that there has been a bit of a tendency I've seen some folks who are like from journalists to fan people trying to compare Mon Mothma to various completely shitty Democratic women in power. And you need to like stop because I don't think any of those shitty Democratic women in power are actually secretly funding the revolution. Listen, Um, Nancy Pelosi could never start the delegation of the 2000. If you don't know what the delegation of the 2000 is... There's a deleted scene in Revenge of the Sith and a thing that they, like, didn't get to, which is very important and which is where Genevieve O'Reilly, she was in Revenge of the Sith and they cut all her scenes. Like, that's where she <laughs> played Mon Mothma first. Oh, um, wow. That's the actress who Mon Mothma. Wow. She was friends with some of these senators and they were kind of a part of a progressive coalition, which is why the more progressive people, they are taken in by the separatists because the separatists and when- well, I'm sorry. When so the separatists are separatists- from the Republic. So this predates the Empire. I should back up, actually, to give a quick... Because politically, this is very interesting. So basically what happens is, is that you have the Republic, and the Republic is really big and really has a lot of fucked up problems. So Palpatine does various machinations to kind of push the buttons of the problems that are already there. Because, yes, he is a Sith Lord, but he's a politician first. Um, that's literally, and he, and the dark side gains power from chaos and he realizes he can cause chaos through politics. I love, I love the combination of that. He's a fascinating character, but basically he, he creates all these political tensions of involving non-humans, um, and all this kind of stuff, basically with problems that are already there. And so a group of planets, they leave, they become the, the, Confederacy of Independent Systems, the CIS, which is why we always say that the Army of the Republic, made of clones, they drive the down with CIS bus. It's very funny. Um, <laughs> they join the, they create the Confederacy of Independent Systems. They're called the Separatists, there, and they have the droid armies. And while the Clone Wars like ravages the galaxy, and that's why the Empire is like, oh well, we're better. We're bringing peace and order and whatever. Um, a lot of people agree with them because they're like, yeah, well, the Republic was kind of fucked up. So you have. You have all these senators who agreed with each other, but then some of them left and some of them didn't. And you have some senators like Padme and like Bail- Padme. The three are ba- Padme, Bail Organa, and Mon Mothma. And then one other guy, he gets killed in the Clone Wars. RIP in peace. Um, who basically are like, well, 
we don't agree with starting an all-out fucking war. We should have a diplomatic solution to this. But nobody's listening to us. Nobody's listening to us because Palpatine is doing everything behind the scenes to make sure that the war keeps happening. Um, but they're like, you know, Palpatine we shouldn't- is Putin. And no, li- he literally. If Emperor Palpatine is Putin or who Putin bases his personality off of, then the separatists are like tankies. They claim to be very much against the centralization of power, but they inadvertently reinforce it by adopting such, you know, wacky ideas such as Russia was justified to invade Ukraine. Palpatine was very much based on the Bush administration in this very specific era. But what you're saying is a better explanation. It could be mapped onto a lot of things. But basically, you have this group of senators who were like, hey, like, this war is kind of fucked up and we're not getting anywhere. And like, clearly something's off. And that's Padme, Mon Mothma, and Bail Organa. Bail Organa being uh, Princess Leia's adoptive father um, from Alderaan. That is why Alderaan is targeted first, uh, because the Empire does eventually figure out Alderaan is being used as a cover. So basically, they, these three senators and the senators who ally with them, the delegation of 2000, I believe that it's called. Someone's going to at me that I'm wrong about some of this. At, at the end of the Clone Wars, when they're like, okay, we're the Empire now. And they're like, hey, I know that we spent like a whole war fighting against separating away. But I fear they may have had some points. And now we have become an Empire and things are very dire and we need to move in silence but basically they form a coalition that starts the coalition that is the is the rebel alliance so when people compare mon mothma to like nancy pelosi or something i'm like she would never have the balls for that like <laughs> like they they're the people who start the damn thing like alderon and chandrilla are they are very wealthy they are very well armed uh, even though they are both peaceful planets, basically because they are resource rich, they are peaceful, they are self sustaining in their core worlds. Like they're very much like we don't the the empire can't do as much to us, but we're gonna play nice because behind the scenes we're gonna do stuff like arm rebels. Um, it's very cool also because like I think we talked about this last time, but like. Bail Organa and his wife, like, they pretend that there's, like, a cheating scandal <laughs> or Bail Organa is having an affair with Mon Mothma to cover up the fact that they're funding rebels. Um, I love but it. But that's why I'm always, yeah. like, don't slander Mon Mothma like that because she has been with the shits since before mm-hmm. the Clone Wars. Um, and and, and, and I she- love that she's like, puts their... I literally got to watch in real time people realize that Mon Mothma was deliberately staging it to look like her husband was embezzling or wasting family money. Like, they didn't understand that she did that on purpose as a cover. Like, I I understand that, like, people don't like a certain kind of rich white lady, but, like, you should, like, watch what's on the screen is all I'm telling people. Watch what's on the screen. Don't project. Because um, that was the entire point of her putting the blame on her asshole husband, trying to explain why that money was, um, was, was gone. Is now she could blame her husband rather than than it's the fact that it's being used to fund the rebels. Wait, you know, he didn't embezzle. No, he, no, she she purposely instead of having like having to go through that fucking loan shark guy, she realized if she oh no she does it. go through him. She introduced well, she does, but she's also she using this int- as an additional cover up. I don't know. Well, I I didn't think it was clear. She if introduces she, did it or not. she introduces him. She introduces his son to her daughter. Per his yeah, and I think she feels kind of gross about it. So she's like, what if I 
did something different so i don't have to go further with this but no yeah, she, but she, she does that, that she she did the she did the thing he asked her to yeah which, lucky for her her daughter is probably okay with because her daughter is like in this wacky religious throwback cult as her form her daughter's teenage rebellion is being a religious extremist so her daughter is probably fine with this that's why mon mothma is not the worst mom in the world is her daughter is totally up for this bullshit but um no no she goes along with it but as an added layer of protection she makes it look like the missing money is because her husband is wasting it at gambling parlors. And she stages that in front of her chauffeur, who's a, who's a spy, because everybody in her household is a spy, so that he goes and reports it right back to the empire to see, oh, well, you know, this is what's actually going on. Her husband's just wasting money. As soon as, as soon as she was like, oh, can you like, you know, can we have some privacy, whatever? And I was like, I know exactly what's going to happen. Oh, she's about <laughs> to girl boss. Okay. Um, because like she knows that she's being spied on. Like I think, I don't know. I just, I feel like viewers are making, th- like Mon Mothma is smarter than you. Like, you know, like dear yeah, people. I mean, she also represents a kind of person that we don't have enough of, which is not an ally, but an accomplice. She's mm. an accomplice. Um, and who is a person who is like, not only putting her own personal safety and money and whatever on the line, but who like, e- shows what it is to like use your privilege and your station for others and like yes we see luthan doing that whatever like luthan her vel they all are like we made a promise to do that and what they're showing is like what it is to be an accomplice like Mm. what that takes and like the shit you have to do um it's sorry charles you were gonna ask something no no okay it just i will say the only – I don't want any cameos except for Bail Organa because he mm. also does shit like this. And it would also be – I would also love to see him in the show because I don't think there were – for a show that stars a Latino and has one other Latino character, Bix, or not enough Latinos. And mm. I think the whole like, oh, white woman thing, I think it would be very different if we like – we had another character. He, he does the same thing, but he's right, right. Jimmy Smith. Um, <laughs> yeah. He's not a white woman. Um, You know, what does that mean? Because like – yeah. Um, Hold on. Could you enlighten me about how race functions in Star Wars? Oh. Well, how, how do we map this? So race in Star Wars is interesting because for humans, it doesn't really mean anything. However, because, I, you know, from a meta perspective, it does mean a lot. And that's where they often go really wrong in Star Wars. Um, they've been doing this thing lately where they're like, ah, oh, we want to add diversity. We're going to add diversity to the empire. And you're like, mm-hmm. girl, I don't think that's We didn't bag. ask um, for that. Yeah. They don't do it as much in this show, but they do it a lot. They, ha- like, they have at least like – there's a character. Her name is Ray Sloan, and she eventually starts the First Order, which is like the neo-Nazis bringing back the empire. And you're like, and why did you have a black woman found the neo-Nazis quickly? I need you to, to speak quickly. Um, <laughs> now, so like there's no race for humans in Star Wars. However, it the way it is often telegraphed is it's it's not good. It's not good. Like for instance, a really big example of that in this show is like Marva is a inspirational kind of she's supposed to be an inspirational kind of character. However, it's very uncomfortable that Cassian's story is essentially white woman steals indigenous child, everything is fine. And then she's wow. like, don't worry about it. It's fine. Yeah. Um and like in universe, it's di- it is a little different. It's more of like ethnicity and like xenophobia. Like there's like if you are from like 
a back backwater planet or like an outer rim planet, there's more like xenophobia. Um, anything that's more like racism is toward like an alien race. Um, there is xenophobia towards humans, um, but it's not obviously skin color based. Um, it's often actually with accents. Um, and so, but it does the way that it comes across in a meta perspective sometimes will add elements to it like kind of this Mon Mothma situation that were not meant and that like complicated. Like Mon Mothma's story is supposed to be very specifically about what it means to be an accomplice on that side. But instead people are seeing it as the like the white woman, like the white woman liberal. And you're like, that's not what they're trying to telegraph here. But because mm-hmm. we are not kind of reckoned with how race comes across in a meta way in Star Wars, it happens constantly. Um yeah, it's you know, I we I I call it the Tarkin problem um because one of my favorite fun facts about Star Wars is that in a fun little short story that is partially satirical but because this is Star Wars it is also canonical, we do find out that Tarkin um is gay. Uh, he oh, is Why? Tar- we don't You know in a New Hope, the guy who's like blow up Alderaan. He's like sorry oh, yes. for this layup. Yes. Yes. Yeah, he has the cheekbones, whatever. He is he's canonically gay. Um, it is a Great. really well written and really funny story. But I started a whole joke about this where I was like, Yeah, like Star Wars will not have a gay person, but they'll make a fascist gay. And that's kind of the thing of like this whole like problem of like what what does race mean, what does identity mean, and all these things. Um also, again, a pitch for my favorite book, Thrawn 2017, because they're like, what if we took the autistic character? But what if we talked about xenophobia in this book from two different ways? You can't get me talking on this. It's a very interesting topic, but it's also like, I need Star Wars to think about these things sometimes because right. when they cast certain things, as like, I mean, Cassian's father, that's another thing. Like, there is an episode where the treatment of black characters in this show, as well as the rest of Star Wars, is questionable. Like, like, Cassian's father, his his adoptive father, Clem, they show that, you know, he was killed by the Empire. But, like, did they have to show him being lynched in the street? No, they did mm. not. Because, like, that has a very different meaning to the audience. But if the meaning to the audience is the Empire is bad and police brutality has happened, sure. But then police brutality happening to a black man, that is... it. You know, that is inadvertently going to come across differently to an audience. Um, And specifically the imagery of literal lynching. I was like, whoa, okay. I don't think the white people making this show thought about this one real quick. Mm. Um, Anyway, a manifesto on race blind versus race conscious gasting. But, you know. Yes, yes. I mean, I I do think one of the things the show does well, though, when you look around the ISB table and there's one woman and there's one black person, you're like, yes, like. Because that's accurate in the sense that there are those special circumstances where they let you get in there among the fascists, but you're never going to actually be in charge. Um, and I love how they ha- the, the actor who plays the, the guy, uh, he basically played um, Maester Quivern, the evil Maester in Game of Thrones. He's fabulous in this. But like, that's exactly the amount I want. I want there to be like, it's great that Deidre, I love that Deidre's character is a woman. I think that's important. I like that there's only one of her. And so you have this moment of being like, oh my God, like they're all ganging up on her. I actually had first noticed that she had a different kind of accent than the others, but regardless. But then it's like, no, she's still fucking torturing people. Um, the black uh, officer, Blevin, if she's having the, just the, the jurisdictional dispute over, he's the only black high leading person. Like this, that's kind of the right balance. It's not going to be the person who's absolutely in charge because that's just like 
because these are fascists. These are fascists. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. they'll, let you, they'll let you act like you're going to have power. They'll let you they'll let you get somewhat up there and then they're just going to yeah. you know, push you off the cliff. That's all. I forget if it was from you, Claudia, but someone made like a recruitment poster for the ISB that used the same language as CIA adverts. Oh, that was that was. Yeah, someone made that poster. And then I went to the CIA website and pulled up what the CIA website had. And it was literally exactly the same. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is like down to like what the buildings look like outside. I was like, you know, and the pictures of like, look at diverse people being happy at the CIA. It was like, it's oh, it's a good rebuttal to uh, the latest Wakanda. Wait, did you watch it, Charles? I, I did, but I watched it in Spanish, so I don't oh. know that I understand. Well. <laughs> well, folks should go listen to the episode that I posted about it on the podcast, Graphic Policy Radio, Wakanda episode. Um, just my shout out is that the CIA does nothing good or successful the entire movie. God bless Ryan Coogler for making that happen. Like the white people security state doesn't do there's one person who's sympathetic, but like he's not successful at helping or doing anything useful and everybody else is just bad. God bless. But um, I, I have a couple of listener questions I want to put to, I, I, I want to put um, front load. Are there any concrete takeaways useful for fighting fascism in our own galaxy from the season thus far? I think my favorite one was the thing that Nemec said of like, try of like you have to Mm -hmm. do something like something small or whatever because like you know the baby leftists on twitter.com are like oh i must join the revolution and like what nemec is saying there is like no you just have to do something like small like do something like do something in your community do something that like there are things that are little pieces of resistance that matter um I'm actually thinking of like there was an episode of Tales of the Jedi and I talked about this a little bit like in the last episode where I was like yeah. it was interesting how belief in the force becomes a political it becomes a political statement people either protecting Jedi or believing in the force or whatever like small little things but like I think the biggest thing is like you know you know there's there's that piece of like if you were a marginalized person like just your existence and your happiness is also like some form of resistance but also just like especially like with community or whatever is like do things amongst your community and try like just do something you do not have to start the glorious revolution for it to be well i mean i think he, but I, I think he's saying that you were part of it by doing so yeah yeah and like that, that's a big you know obviously that is not a new idea um the ethos of occupy was just uh just do the thing there was no central registry there was no one to give you permission you just had to do the thing and then you're part of the movement mm-hmm that's a good parallel. Uh, what do you what 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 can you, do? You want to expand on responding to that question, Charles? Um, just that the show did a great job of showing the decision making and courage of all kinds of folks. Remember those two aliens who decided to help the prisoners escape? Help uh, yeah. Cass escape. I yeah. At first, you think they're going to turn them in for money, but it turns out that they're they're good little comrades. Um, uh, but we see regular people engaging in resistance all over the place, um, as, as if the, the culture, the air itself is breathing resistance. And I think sometimes radicals in the U S conflate the campaigns they're working on with that other thing that we see in the show. And it's good to not do that. Conflate how, like, like imagining, I'm I'm pretending that I'm now in Occupy, imagining that that what we were doing there was 
changing the country and getting everyone to, you know, share food and sleep on tents together. There was a, there was a utopian current that didn't want to see Occupy as a political tool. They wanted to see Occupy as ushering in the new millennium. And you can't really do that in this country. It's interesting you mentioned the the like the aliens or whatever because I did not expect a Star Wars TV show to address the issues of what do prisons do to the communities around them. I was mm. like, oh, all right, we're going there because yeah, that's a big thing that's right. in the U.S. especially of like where prisons are placed, obviously for voting reasons and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I, it was very interesting, like, and, you know, some people were like, oh, that was our little moment of camp as well, um, you know, with weird little puppets and, like, gross stuff and whatever in a Star Wars, obviously. But I think that was very, um, I thought that was very interesting. I was like, between that and also, obviously, a discussion of the prison industrial complex, whatever. But, like, between that and also discussions of, like, what makes an incel and sexual harassment, I was like, wow, they're going there in yeah, Star Wars. That's, that's, that's what the show does. I mean... I, heck, this is the show in which the season ends with some of the heroes planning on killing the main hero, incidentally for his own good, but still. Like, that's that's what the revolutionaries were doing on Ferrix. They were, like, waiting to find Cassian so they could shoot him so that he wouldn't spill information to the, to the Empire. Like, you know, not maliciously killing him, right? But killing him nonetheless. Like, that is a bold... A, a bold proposition. Actually, I what think I remember you saying, Charles, you didn't like the finale from, I remember you saying this. Uh, it, it felt maybe not as good as some of the other episodes, but I don't have a major critique of the finale uh, thought out. Oh, okay. Then I'm not going to hold you to it. I just wasn't sure if you did. <laughs> just to emphasize that as we talk about the different kinds of resistance, what a great job the show has done at exemplifying all the dilemmas of both empire and resistance and humanizing it in a deep way. So no matter what part of the political spectrum you are in the U.S., you know, pro-fascist or anti-fascist, uh, you can find parts of what you're up to reflected in this show in a great mm -hmm. way. That's true. They, like, they, like, they let Cyril say, can one ever be too aggressive in preserving order? And everybody's like nods and says, yes, I know. Hmm. Like, yeah, like you could watch that and decide that that actually is the value that you stand by. Um, and, and then they invade Iraq. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, another listener question. Um, I think this is from Gan Golan. Hello, Gan. How does the rebellion gauge when they have enough popular support to wage sabotage and civil disobedience tactics that bring the state empire's violence into public view in a way that is more SNCC lunch counter sit-in, student nonviolent non coordinating committee, lunch counter sit-in, and less weatherman days of rage in their catalytic effect. Can you take want to take the lead on that? <laughs> the, real, sure. the real universe doesn't have a Martin Luther King Jr., okay, Buster? Uh, ain't no Satyagraha soul force changing people's hearts and minds in the empire. This is all about tactics and strategy with weaponry. Hmm. I mean, I, I think Gan is asking like the real question. And I mean, Luthan is saying now we're doing it now, even if, even if we are the weatherman, we're doing it now, you know, I'm sorry, I haven't even mentioned it yet, but like so much of the pivotal conversation and action in this season is around the public order resentencing directive. Like that's what the prisoner, the imprisoned people who are on 
Narkina 5 with Cassian, they're asking him about like, they're hearing that like their sentences have been increased because all of their crimes have been labeled as being insurrection against the empire. And that's why they're getting sentenced for longer and longer sentences. And Cassian, because he's not viewing himself as being politicized in that point, is like, I don't know what that is. I haven't been watching the news. I've never heard of this. And the prisoners are all like, oh, why haven't you been watching space CNN? Um, and he's a double you, hero. I know. Like, how have you not even heard of this? You don't know. Um, but like it is impacting all of their lives. Like you see it. It's why Mon Mothma suddenly has to be more careful with her money and how she's using it. Um, it's why the prisoners terms are allegedly getting extended. Like the public order resentencing directive, like, you know, is a response that the empire has to Aldani. But of course the El empire would have done that for something else if it hadn't been Aldani. That's the thing, right? Like they can just do this when they want to. Wait, you're, you're telling me that the extension of prison terms was a direct response to a, to a payroll heist? Yeah. According. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. I'm glad I'm on this show to find out what I missed. Yeah. Well, that, that they basically enact the Patriot Act. It, it's like a combination mm -hmm. of like mandatory minimum sentencing laws and the Patriot Act. Um, yeah. And this is like a classic thing that Palpatine does whenever because he's like, all right, well, I don't have to do anything too crazy. What if I just, you know, did, did something in a legislative way that kind of shook the table? And that's why he's knows what he's motherfucking doing and succeeds so often because he'll do something like this that just throws a wrench into everything. Um, what's interesting, though, is it's very similar to, like, what happens post-Death Star. When they blow up the first Death Star, the political ramifications in the rest of the galaxy are cr – they're crazy um, mm. because the Empire snaps back in a big way. Um, you obviously have a lot of people who, like – if they had, you know, there were millions, thousands to millions of people who worked on the Death Star. So you have people who were like related to them who got killed, who become extremely radicalized and become fascists. But the rebellion basically, they got chased into hiding after that. And they're like, we know that the Empire is going to be hot on our ass for the next while. I have to like find and build a new base. And by the time we see Hoth or whatever, but they're basically, we have to seize on this political moment because people have realized for the first time, like, the empire can get its ass kicked and the, and the empire scrambles cuz they're like we what what are we going to do in response of course in response they're like what if we built another one it doesn't go so well they really don't know how to respond in this in this case and that's why like the rebellion is like we need to take advantage of this politically and i think that's very it's very interesting. Um, one of my favorite short stories, they have these books they're called from a certain point of view they did for the first two movies where they're like oh, yeah. what if we did every scene in the movies but from someone else in the scenes point of view written by all these famous authors and there's one story which of course appealed to me because i used to work in journalism about a journalist the media is very it's basically china like right now where it's very very censored on the hollow net that's the internet basically um the news whatever the it, the the media is very censored and people who work in journalism who want to not just say the party line, some of them defect and they start making propaganda films for the for the rebellion. Charles, do you have any other thoughts around that question or I think we've I think we've done collectively and especially you, Claudia, of connecting the politics of the empire to our current moment. 
I wonder if this isn't going to end up similar to other pieces of pop culture from Harry Potter to uh, the Hunger Games, where there's a kind of mainstream acceptance of the rebel as a, as an important figure, as someone to emulate. It doesn't seem to have much impact on politics in our world. It's interesting you mentioned the Hunger Games because I remember specifically Hunger Games catching fire coming out, I believe, right at the beginning of some of the Black Lives Matter protests. I want I don't I I'm getting years wrong, but I want to say it was near Trayvon Martin. And like there's a whole issue with how race was depicted, even though it is supposed to be the United States in the Hunger Games, um, in in the movies, whatever, but there's like there were certain districts who were clearly more black and how that came across, whatever. It came at a very specific political moment, especially in American Mm -hmm. politics. And to this day, people who like grew up with those books will be like, I remember and were like, you know, not to say that like a piece of media should be the only thing that radicalizes you, but there were a lot of people who like came into a consciousness very young being like, I remember these books being quite radical for me reading them and then seeing the movies, which even toned it down a little bit, but then seeing like all the marketing and all the craziness around it that was basically like it missed the point. They were the capital kind of deal. And like people to this day, now they are adults being like, I'm a little older than some of these people, but like who now are adults who are like, that was something that had a very deep impact on me um, and how I saw these kind of things. Um, And in a very different way from like the kind of black and white thinking of like Harry Potter or something like that. But also JK Rowling, her practice is bad. But yeah, yeah, specifically with the Hunger Games, I think that came at a very, people had a very different, it had a different long-term impact than I think other things. I think with Andor, it's going to be very interesting that you bring up that long-term impact because it is a part of Star Wars. Um, you know, you have, like, the original Star Wars that is a commentary on, like, Vietnam. Um, and that had a specific impact on, like, that generation of people. But then it had a very different impact on people who watched it later, like me. Um, I'll be very interested to know. I'll be very interested to know what that means. Um I made a funny little tweet where I was like, you know, if you say shit about people who like destroy things in protests and then you thought Andor was a good show, shut the fuck up. Because, yeah. uh, you know, it'll be very interesting to yes. see if people connect those dots. Um, and I don't really know either way. So I think it matters for people's self-concept of who they who they relate to and connect to and identify with in any given story, actually. So I I, I do think that those stories were significant. They're just not like the determiner of cultural outcome but you you know you hear people all the time i mean like literally it's one of the the theses of the show is like i always hearing like you know straight guys being like you know the x-men is what made me understand the realities for like marginalized people and like organizing in solidarity with them and i'm like you know obviously it's a flawed metaphor in so many ways but when it comes to kids like it does the job so you know all of these things like around you know rogue one which was what this movie was based on came out right when trump came to power and literally um, right after the 2016 election it was oh yeah no i cried in the movie theater twice because i was all like am i gonna have to die blowing up the death star because it was you know um anyway i you know and what we saw from it was yeah like it influenced a ton of people's signs that they used at protests 
And I also think that some of those people, you know, like maybe being able to put themselves into those stories and put themselves into that physical space made them feel more comfortable being out there in that protest, even if it was like the most sanctioned and like least beat up by the pigs protest. It like still made them feel like it was a space that they wanted to be and a force that they wanted to connect themselves to and be present in. Um, I, I mean, there's a reason why like the sort of like quote unquote normie Dems or whatever, like we're using hashtag like resistance. It was coming from watching those movies, identifying with that language, wanting to see themselves as revolutionary and then putting that towards the task of winning the midterms, basically. I'm thinking of the the next time the police are kettling some protesters, I guarantee we're going to hear one way out. One way out. Absolutely. As, uh, yeah, it's going to happen. One way, one way out. Absolutely. It was like fucking brilliant. Um, so my, my last question, well, going back to my Mon Mothma obsession, um, you know, she talks about how she sort of performs as being like a person who's trying to be helpful, but is ultimately useless uh, in her role as a senator and how that's a distraction from the actual radical work that she's doing. And we do get to see her like doing, it's not like she's pretending to be right wing and is actually left wing. She's pretending to be like a mainline liberal and is actually funding radical activism. But we hear her speech that she gives the Senate and like a few people agree with her and lots of people scoff at her. And she mentions as an aside that she's been a senator since she was 16. Um, You know, Star Wars has a history of having powerful teenagers, like with official designations. We also have the super impotent Senate that can't, that isn't really listened to. I mean, the Senate is like structured to what it's just, it's just that they have rich young people appointed to it from different localities and then the senate doesn't have actual enforceable power or or, or what's exactly going on there like we know the senate didn't actually approve of the bill they're just acting on it the the emperor is acting on it anyway it's sort of like a fake is it like vichy at this point what is the what is up with the senate and why are there teenagers from it's like it's like the 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 people's congress in, in in china basically at this point of like yeah they gather for in a symbolic way, but at the end of the day, um, and the senators going into it, they knew that they were like, "We're about to be useless, so we need to use this as a front." All of all the ones who gave a fuck. But what you said about like having young people is very interesting because like people always ask this about like Padme in the prequels. They're like, "Why do they have a teen queen?" It's a weird thing that they put into Star Wars, but I but I think the assumption, as far as I know, is that it's like on a planet to planet basis. So, like, they elect their senators in whatever way. They have two senators from every planet. I don't know if it's every planet or every system. I believe it's every system. Um, And figure out how they elect somebody to go there, which is why you have some people who are quite corrupt and have been there for a while. You have some people who are truly democratically elected. I think they have the same term limits. I wish I knew the exact things on this. But like for having somebody who is very junior, like there is like an apprentice Senate kind of deal that actually Leia is a part of when she's young. But that's different than like Mon Mothma becoming. uh, I know she is one of the like youngest senators to ever be in there as a legitimate senator. I believe it is like based per culture, especially because there's so many like non-humans and their maturity and their age and whatever is different. So maybe that's Mm. why they're just kind of like, yeah, whatever. 
y'all have at it. You know, Wookiees live for hundreds of years. So for them, it's You're all children to a Wookiee. Yeah, I love somebody said somewhere that like, essentially Han Solo is Chewbacca's cat. Yeah, we call Han Solo Chewbacca's fucked up little dog. Um, <laughs> That's true because the Wookiees live for hundreds of years and humans yeah. live for a hundred max. So Yeah. But- just haven't figured out syllables. They don't need yeah. syllables. They just yeah. have a different way of communicating. Yeah, they do. Um, um, but the Senate is the Senate is odd. The answer to why they would have a teenager, who knows? <laughs> I mean, since it isn't necessarily canon that Coruscant's senator would be a teenager, like I think Tony Gilroy might be going for the idea that the Senate is so impotent that it might as well be staffed by children who are just sort of symbolic. If I recall the fandom, what was saying when like the the prequels came out in the 90s was that like, I think like those countries believed that having a, a teenager or a child be their elected leader was better because they wouldn't be corrupted, which of course is like a weird Have take. you got children? I know. <laughs> yeah. Also, I have no idea if Coruscant itself has a senator. It's like DC. I don't even know if they have a vote. <laughs> I got to right, look that one right. up. You've just you've just started a campaign. Not no representation without no, taxation for Coruscant. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> we Coruscant gets a vote. I'm on board. Yeah. Here's another question about that system, though. It sounds like they have a system like the American Senate, meaning highly undemocratic. Absolutely. What about, yeah. What about uh, multi-solar system districts where one alien equals one vote instead of a lopsided one where you could have some system with a few hundred people and they still get two senators mm, something's yeah. up with that oh yeah mm-hmm. that's a that's a that's a big one and also like I mean, in yeah. star wars there's a piece of world building that people always criticize of like you go onto a planet and they're like this whole planet is jungle and you're like okay but planets have multiple t- t- multiple cultures multiple species multiple languages multiple climates whatever and in star wars they're like keep it simple Keep it simple, um, <laughs> which is fine. And especially they have, they'll have like systems that'll have like a planet and some moons and whatever, and they have different shit going on. Um, but yeah, the, the 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 two senators for everybody thing is. Hmm. Are we saying that the galaxy needs a bicameral legislature? Discuss. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. The, we need, and I'm also thinking about how. Uh, a species could decide to just make themselves smaller and more numerous in order yes. to yes. power in the Senate or something. Our hive mind. Oh, you have opened up a can of worms. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think how many more people we could sustain on this planet if the average height of a human was two and a half feet. <laughs> well, I want to leave our listeners with some suggestions, you know, of further reading and watching. We definitely saw some visual, like in Cyril Karn's office, uh, relations to like Brazil, the Terry Gilliam film, um, the THX one one three eight, which was uh, the original George. George Lucas film debut. Like everything with the prison was visually inspired by that film, and it's like a shockingly powerful movie still to this day. Um, and I sure Charles, I remember you wanted to shout out Battle of Algiers. Amazing. It's an amazing movie that sort of reconstructs um, part of the War of Independence of Algeria against the French. Um, 
Yeah, definitely. If you have not seen that movie, it's on your list now. It's on HBO, so folks can just watch it. Um, I also thought about Army of Shadows, which is a really great film from this French film from the 60s about the French resistance. Um, Very bleak, uh, but shows how the interpersonal, how people end up doing radical revolutionary acts to support their friends, even more so than to support a particular cause and how that that social group kind of comes the source of the commitment and obligation to one another. It's, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a film noir, but it's made in the sixties and it's set in France during, during world war two. I know someone shared with me Don Moynihan's piece on Substack about the empire and the administrative state. And that piece is really good. What else should folks check out? I was like, Oh, you know, anything on prison abolition. Um, (laughs) How many yeah. people? How many Andor fans can we get to read Miriam Kaba quickly? Um. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, people should check out uh, a little-known uh, ideological current called Situationism. Oh um, boy, I don't uh, know about little-known. Without, <laughs> without well, you know, among the things, uh, let's just say there's no Situationist caucus yet in DSA. Um, I mean, good. Maybe some. I, I love them, but but good. <laughs> But, uh, but in the sense that a lot of the um, action in Andor is someone constructing a situation for a group of people in order to radicalize them, which is the heart of what situationists were up to, say, in Paris in May of 68. So that whole, that whole funeral was Marva being a situationist and saying, how can I turn my funeral into a moment that forces people to take a side for real? And then it happens. Uh, in the prison, uh, it's forcing a moment by grabbing the microphone and communicating to all the prisoners. It's now or never. You've created the moment, and then action flows automatically. Mm. Well, that definitely also is like, hey, folks, read the in- the Invisibles, the Grant Morrison, Phil Jimenez, and some other artists' comic series. Because that's all just like situationist, except in the night the nineties and with lots it's of an amazing comics. series. Yes. Best fucking comics. I don't know. Watch Star Wars Rebels, but I say that every time. So <laughs> it remains true. Read Miriam Kaba and then watch Star Wars Rebels. These are the things and, we can consider. And and then seriously, go watch Rogue One if you haven't. And good God, that post-credit moment of seeing that, what was that incredibly secretive, private, delicate prison manufacturing operation all about was making the fucking focusing array for the Death Star. I just like, want to say... I predicted it. I said it. I don't know oh, if I said did. it on here. I don't know if I said you it on did, here though. or if yeah. I said it on Rupalps, but I said people were like, oh, what are they making? And I was like, obviously it's like support struts for the Death Star. And everyone was like, <laughs> I don't know. It could be an ATAT. I was like, it's gotta be the Death Star. It would be poetic cinema because he then he destroyed yes. the Death Star. Come on, guys. That's what it is. Yeah. I actually yeah. I missed that scene because I watched screeners of the episode and I didn't know that there was more. So then this episode came out and I saw people talking about it on Twitter. I had written a whole article and I was like, oh, did I, I missed, I missed a very pivotal scene. Shit. That's not um, fair. They did that to you, but yeah. Yeah. I was so mad. Cause I was like, this is prestige television. It's not the Marvel cinematic universe. There's no, there's no tag on the end. And I was wrong. I was so wrong. Um, somebody put it in a really good way. They were like, I think it's not that like, oh, he builds the thing that kills him. It's that he then he gets to destroy the thing that that he you know was forced to build Mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's like the purpose of it 
is to show that, you know, I'm so I'm, I was really excited to have that be included. The canary uh, blows Char up. Yeah. Full on. Oh yeah. We were going to talk about the name. Oh, I forgot about that. So when I was telling my my dad about how even though he doesn't really care for Star Wars, he although he did enjoy the Mandalorian, he might want to watch Andor. He kept getting confused and thinking I was saying and or as an and slash or and or what? Um, and I think the name kind of brings the idea of like and or like you have choices, I guess, or and you could do this or you could do that. Like it's about being pivotal. I don't know. That's my read on the name. I for I can't believe I didn't clock the Canary thing. I was like, oh, I feel stupid. <laughs> So yeah, he's from Canary, Canary. He is sounding the alarm. He's the Canary in the coal mine, as it were. Um, I mean, Star Wars names, every now and then they really do they really do go from being random syllables to feeling very much more significant and meaningful. Either something significant and meaningful, or it's like Tim with two M's. There's not really anything <laughs> in between. <laughs> Uh, let our listeners know where they can find your work, Claudia. Well, yeah. So I am one of the co-hosts of RuPalp's Pod Race. We are a queer Star Wars podcast. We have like critical discussions about latest Star Wars media. So we're covering the TV shows, the books, the whatever. Even when we get really deep cut, um, people say that they very much enjoy listening, even when they don't understand what we're talking about. So no worries there. Because then we do spend the other half of the episode playing really stupid games. Um it's it's a very fun time. We have a, we have a good balance. Mm -hmm. uh, as the oldest person on the podcast, I do come in and I explain the references to people who may not be as thoroughly online under twenty five as some of the people I am podcasting with. Mm -hmm. I also have a podcast, The Mystery Spotcast. It's very unserious, which is where my friend and I do force ourselves to rewatch all of Supernatural. Um, and explain it to people why why people liked it for so long, even though it's so bad. Um, and the, the goal is that no one ever watches it. Um, it's especially fun if you have never seen it because we'll just explain it to you. Um, it's a grand old time. Look, again, anybody can enjoy. Um, and I'm also, I am on mostly Twitter and TikTok. I'm still on Twitter because I guess it'll never die. Uh, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, all that um, at Kaludia says, K-A-L-U-D-I-A says, um, usually talking about everything and anything um in media but obviously quite a lot about star wars and uh yeah i wrote a great piece about andor um and all that kind of stuff and also our last andor episode we kind of and i think our next one we're gonna kind of get into our critiques of the show um from a representational point of view which we kind of touched on today so because we've talked a lot about you know all the things we liked about it so anyways that's where you can find me yeah, um, I think it'll be good for people to hear that perspective on RuPalp's P-A-L-P pod race. And Charles, where can we keep up with your work? I'm on Twitter, uh, which I believe will never die. That's correct. Um, at Clenchner. And I will be using it to launch the new DSA caucus for situationists. So please, uh, please touch base. There you go. And I'm still on Twitter for now. I'll be dragged out kicking and screaming i imagine e-l-a-n-a -A underscore brooklyn which is also what i am on mastodon which is also what i am on post and also what i will be on any platform that we end up going to so that i can easily be found because i care about being in touch with you my listeners so again this is graphic policy radio and as we like to say keep it geeky <laughs>